Hey everyone, it's Stefan Barrett with Feed the Machine. Today we have David Leggett, who is an entrepreneur, web designer, and developer. He's co-founder of UX Booth and recently served on the leadership team at Python Safety, who was recently acquired. We're going to talk about today things like convincing leadership to invest in user testing and why it's important to create technology not only for your users, but also for your employees. That's today's topic on Feed the Machine. David, thanks for joining me on Feed the Machine. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really fascinated by your story. You started at a very young age and applied your skills in digital design. Uh, you're a writer um, and an entrepreneur. You've started and been part of growth for several companies. Um, tell me more about your background. I always tell people, like, don't follow in my footsteps because uh, they don't make any sense for most people. So I, it, at some level, you know, some of the things that I might have done, I don't believe, you know, I got lucky is really what it came <laughs> down to. Right. Um, you know, I, I happened to start off at an early enough age that some of these things just fell into place and I was at the right place at the right time. So um, kind of got started at, a, you know, when I was 12 or 13 years old and, you know, just designing in Photoshop and got interested in that, started writing tutorials and telling other people, hey, look what you can do in this software, it's pretty neat. And um, that kind of evolved into a business in itself um, where I had a few websites going that taught, you know, this, this, this is how you do this in Photoshop, this is how you build a basic website. Um, and that caught on around the same time that uh, the Yahoo Publisher Network and Google AdSense really started kicking into gear. Um, so all of a sudden, uh, I was started to make revenue in high school just writing tutorials online, and it, it turned into a pretty viable business. And um, following that, I uh, I met some people at a uh, it's kind of like a summer camp for high school kids where they they take. 600 kids from around the state of Georgia, throw them all in a university together for six weeks and say, hey, go learn as much as you can. We have all these great teachers here. Um, and I met some cool people there. And two of those people, Matthew Kammerer and Andrew Meyer, we, uh, we ended up hitting it off and decided that we wanted to do something together. So we went and started the UX booth, which was a, a new publication, which I, I had already had some experience with publications online that was all about user experience design, which was an area of mutual interest for the three of us. And uh, that publication kind of grew pretty quickly and uh, had an immediate following and we all kind of loved what we were doing and, um, you know, there were some very enthusiastic people that, you know, liked the publication. So uh, that, that did pretty well and um, at some point I just had too much other stuff going on to really continue down that path. So I, uh, I, I diverged from there as well as Andrew um, and we kind of left that in the hands of Matthew who's running it today and he's doing a great job doing that um, and, and we went off and, and kind of did the whole freelance web design web developer thing so from there uh, you know got into client work and 
eventually picked up Python Safety as one of my clients. So um, that's kind of how that got started. And I, I got in kind of the ground floor there. So we went and built that company up from scratch, basically. And uh, just recently got acquired. So we, we've had a lot of fun with that. Um, i trying to think if there's anything. Oh, you know, one of the you know, interesting things, I think, that um, you know, I kind of got lucky with having this opportunity my my best friend in college he uh he decided he was going to run for state house when he was 20 years old and wow. uh i got to manage his campaign and i say manage he he did like all the work i just got to help with the website and design this and maybe organize a few canvassing things around different neighborhoods but um we uh, we ran when he was 20 years old. He uh, he ended up taking 46 percent of the vote, and um, that kind of blew everyone away. So we ran again the the following election cycle, and he actually won and became the youngest state house rep in the country. So that was a a pretty fun time, and we uh, we've done some cool things there, like. Um, we we didn't take any lobbyist donations or anything, so it was entirely funded through donations from actual constituents. Um, we limited how much we would donate to to our own campaign. We uh, we returned all unused funds to donors, so you know we had a few thousand dollars left after the campaign cycle and um, gave all that money back to people in proportion to what they gave. Um, and we've, we've kind of spread this idea of a more accountable, transparent uh, legislator to a few others nearby, I think. And it's starting to catch on in Georgia. And hopefully it'll keep spreading in Georgia and, and further on than that. Because I think uh, local government has a lot of potential for change around the nation. And, um, you know, it, it'd be nice to get some, some great people in government. I think there are some good people in government, but I do think we can do better. I'm really interested in that government piece. We've got some interesting clients um, on the government side that um, have us have very interesting sets of challenges, right? And government, I think, with technology overall, um, has challenges. So, what were some of the things that you were doing for your friend's campaign with technology that maybe uh, the people that he was running against weren't doing? I mean, did you guys have an advantage there just because of? maybe your age and coming into this from a different perspective? You know, one of the, the biggest advantages I think we had was we were already very well accustomed to social media. And um, I, I usually don't like throwing around the word social media. It sounds like a buzz phrase to me. But um, it was definitely true in this case. All of our competition wasn't really focused on Facebook or Twitter or all these different avenues where there were lots of architecture constituents where they, they were ready to um, listen to our message, kind of hear out our ideas. And, uh, you know, the competition instead, what they what they did is they might hire someone to handle their Facebook page and they might post an update once a week or once a month. And um, for whatever reason, maybe this is just, you know, local to Georgia. Um, other politicians in Georgia weren't using social media to its full potential. So we took huge advantage of that. It worked out really well for us. Um, let's see. One of the, um, one of the, the big components of, 
uh, my friend's campaign, Michael Caldwell, I'll just say his name so you know, know who he is, um, is he kind of managed all of that himself too. He didn't, he didn't pay to have someone, you know, write his words for him on any of those things. So it just came off as very genuine, I think, which um, a lot of people responded really well to. So yeah, I'd, I'd say that was our biggest advantage there. I think sometimes the social edge um, can can be such a, a game changer. I mean, it's the difference between reaching someone uh, who doesn't necessarily pay attention to maybe TV or radio or, or the other types of outlets that were so popular and now are becoming the minority. If you have a voice on social channels, like you're saying, I mean, I think that's that can be a difference maker. And, it, it, you know, it's something that, I feel can show authenticity in a much better way because it's like, well, you know, when somebody believes that's you and they, and you do things that show that that's you, <laughs> you can't beat that. Like that's gold. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it comes down to the candidate too. And there are, there are good people in government and then there's some people that maybe, you know, maybe they're not as good, but it, it was so easy with Michael specifically because he, that's what he was all about. You know, he was all about transparency and accountability. And every Saturday he took an hour out of his day to go to a local coffee house where he kind of had his own like mock town hall where anyone could come in and just sit down and talk with him. And, um, you know, that's just what he was all about. He liked communicating with constituents. So that worked really well. Um, one of the other things that we, we were doing that other candidates weren't doing was kind of looking at new ways that we could make data available to constituents. And one of the things we did was we put together a quick app on his website where he could publish um, up to the minute uh, tracking information of this is every dollar his campaign is taking in, this is where it's going, this is all the in-kind donations, and you know what others kind of saw as a tactical disadvantage because he's, he's basically publishing for everyone to see this is exactly where his money's going as it's happening. Um, we saw that as, as, an, as an advantage to the end user and hopefully through that, you know, something that people would take to heart and um, see as, you know, we're actually trying to make some some differences in, in how people govern. Um, you know, a lot of people, they like to kind of conceal how they're spending money during a campaign. That way, you can't tell if they they put out that robocall that, you know, slammed you in, in the election or if um, they bought a, a front page ad on a magazine and now you have to counter. But we were we were showing our hand all the time and, and it, 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 it still worked out for us. We still won the election. So I think that that's... Uh, that's something that other candidates here in Georgia have seen and have started to adopt as well. That's fantastic. I mean, it's great to hear the ideas of being so transparent and open, um, which I believe leads to trust. You know, and I think businesses have the same opportunity where, as you know, there's there's this huge trend of trend of being such an open company. I mean, some companies like um, HubSpot, for instance. Um, they publish everything except salaries to yeah. every every individual employee. Um, the uh, the other company that I was thinking of, Buffer, they actually publish everything and salaries to the public. 
So yeah, it, it kind of makes you wonder, you know, if, if, if you're a designer there and, and you're getting paid, you know, <laughs> significantly less than the guy working next to you, what happens when you see that? I, I mean, it, maybe that, maybe that works out for them and maybe, maybe there's, you know, something there, but I, I think there's, there's more than one right way to run a company. <laughs> so um, yeah. I, I'm not sure that's for everyone yet. I agree. I, I definitely think it's radical. Um, but I think that the the level of honesty um, has an effect on trust. Um, and so I want to unpack a couple things around what you did inside maybe UX Booth and Python Safety, where two companies that you helped either start or grow, um, and, and some of the challenges in that where they were trying to maybe build something or um, you know create scale with technology, but had some, some trouble doing it. Um, what are some of the things when you look back that you might have done differently inside of those companies? Sure. Um, I'll, I'll take one step further back. There was another publication I, I founded called Tutorial 9, where I, I wrote Photoshop tutorials, I wrote web design tutorials, and I also hired authors to come in and post their tutorials and lessons and guides as well. Um, and one of the problems that I had with that website was I, I tried to go it alone way too long. It was mm. a totally independent publication. I didn't have any help besides the people I was paying to write articles. Um, and for whatever reason, I didn't recognize how serious of an issue that was. And it ultimately kind of led to that company not being sustainable. Mm. Um, fast forward to UX booth. Um, I had two other partners helping me with that. Um, it, it was a just co-founded publication that you know we all had mutual interest in it, and that helped significantly. But we still kind of encountered the same problem where we didn't have we didn't have the manpower to um, consistently create very high quality content that was um, you know edited and uh, read well and was related to other things and you know there was a link here that went back to another article to keep people engaged or whatever and um, I, I made the same mistake I didn't realize that you know we really need more help here to keep this thing moving well and um, thankfully my teammates both realized that that was a serious issue and and they they brought in good people to make sure that the publication kept running smoothly and and we kind of avoided the, the same mistake twice there so that that was something that I kind of learned running publications and and just working in, in businesses in general is that it's not a good idea to take on too much responsibility by yourself um, in technology just because there's so many different facets to it and it's, it's impossible to do everything well um, over in Python safety, um, I don't think we ran into quite as many technology problems. Um, I kind of had full reign over, you know, exact. Uh, you know, sometimes you go and you work for a company and you get a lot of pushback when you try to do something and, and fix a problem. But I, I didn't really have that issue at Python safety, thankfully. So. Um, we didn't run into as much difficulty there. However, one thing that was kind of a constant um, point of pain was we used a, a CRM that was very difficult to develop for, like to develop our own tools for using their API. 
Mm-hmm. So we so we always had this problem where we had our own database and the CRM had its own database and they never really reconciled the, the information back and forth. Um, you know, wherever I go next, I want to make sure that whatever CRM we have to use, if it's essential, um, can I can develop for it. I can talk to it through an API and build cool tools for the sales team or the operations people that, that make the business more automated and just keep things running running smoothly. And I think that's such a challenge. You know, the, some of the people that I talk to have very similar challenges in that there's so many technology options. And then how to get them all talking to each other in a way that is, one, useful, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and also... Um, something that could scale with you as you grow, you know, I've got a, I had a a client try to implement um, a strategy with uh, a third party SaaS tool where once they, they enter data, um, you know, that was the smooth part. But then after that, using it, he's like, it just feels very clunky. Mm -hmm. And that's a description when that's a non-technical description to me of the interface is more challenging than it should be <laughs> or maybe not just the interface the overall flow from one thing to the next it's sure so much more challenging than it should be that it makes the process harder and, and how does that affect the adoption of that tool set then so you know are, are your employees actually using that tool or are now they you know making their own ways with excel spreadsheets to to figure that stuff out well, that's exactly it. He said he had, I mean, before they had that, they had the good old uh, sheet of paper. And he's like, some of my team still use the good old sheet of paper <laughs> because it's just plain faster. And, you know, if, you, if your technology can't beat a flat piece of paper today, then it, it's just, it's certainly not uh, appropriate. Yeah, I think the, you know, the biggest challenge I've had anyways is communicating to to the people that make those decisions on, on which uh, SaaS tools they they purchase license for, um, you know how do you how do you convince them that you know there is a very real cost involved to them choosing that and the tools that you can build for the team based on those choices because a lot of the time you sometimes you might already know some of the tools that you can build that'll that'll be useful or or maybe how that that software um, talks to another third-party software that you have but other times it's like you won't know for three to six months what you might want to develop so how do you associate a cost with that and by then it's already too late to sometimes migrate all of that data that you have in that software over to a different platform yeah I mean there's there's some businesses that stick with a platform even when it's not performing because of that migration challenge like oh we've got years and years of legacy information that we'd have to move over the cost of that yeah it's <laughs> prohibitive and so it makes me think uh, you you had in your profile that you, you have experience implementing process processes that accelerate projects talk to me about that like what what kind of technology um, are you talking about or processes are you talking about when you refer to accelerating projects so one of the things as as a web developer and a web designer you know it's really it's really easy to think about oh you build the front page of the website and you know all the pages connected to that and and that's true but one of the things that i think is overlooked a lot of the time is 
how can we make tools that are useful for the people in the company, not the people, you know, outside the company. Um, and and that's that's an area that I got to play around in a lot at Python Safety, and I had a lot of fun there because our sales force was constantly talking to me about hey, it'd be really useful if we were able to do this. Or, you know, it'd be nice if when we sent out a link, we could uh, see if someone clicked it in the email. So, you know, how, how could we do that? Um, so I, I constantly got these ideas for, hey, you know, if we did it this way, we could automate this part of the business. That way our sales team or our operations team can spend more time focusing on things that can't be automated. Um, one example of that was we, uh, we needed to be able to send out a um, price list that was customized based on a certain number of products we sold and had thumbnails of each of those products and maybe they, the different columns associated with those products needed to be customizable. So uh, what had been happening is we had people in our inside sales team that were putting together spreadsheets every day that took you know half an hour to an hour to make and customize because it's not easy to put images in a spreadsheet and, and keep those ordered well. And um, as a result, you know that meant that they were spending all that time off the phones or not answering emails or not doing other things that were important. Um, but we already had a database set up where we had all of that information so within probably five or six hours I was able to whip up a, a very quick tool that was protected under you know you had to be logged in as a Python safety employee to use it and now they could go in and just check a bunch of boxes and it would export out in a spreadsheet format uh, everything that they were doing manually and it was consistent and it was always accurate so that, that was just one example of a process that we automated and as a result saved a lot of time in for the, for the sales team. Um, so, so just small things like that where having a developer or designer on board in a small company can make a huge difference. Um, and I, well, I feel silly for saying that because now I, I feel like I made myself sound really important there. <laughs> um, it, it's really about like listening to what the employees are saying you know, this would be really useful, but we have no way of doing this. And then saying, well, here's a way. And, and it took very minimal effort on your part. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, when, when you're able to do that and save that kind of time, from what I see, it's not just the time savings, which is huge in and of itself. But think about the energy savings as well. I mean, we're all people. A company's just a group of people that have a certain amount of energy or for attention for getting things done every day you take something like that out where you're saving that half hour or an hour of building a custom spreadsheet that is tedious type of work you know mm -hmm. you can't you can't do that and do something else at the same time mm -hmm. uh, and now you're saving that time plus the amount of energy that it took to do that so you can spend more time on other things but have greater focus I mean, I'm a huge advocate for this just because of how it can redirect the uh, energy of a team into something that is more profitable, you know, going forward as opposed to spending all that time on that. I think it's huge. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, it kind of shows when they go from using that tool set 
you know, we're, we're kind of in a unique position right now since we just got acquired. Obviously, a lot of change has to happen now. So some of those tools are going away. And I have, I have no fear that this new company will come up with alternatives uh, at some point. But, you know, sometimes that takes time when these things happen. Um, but right now, watching our sales team move away from some of these tools, um, you can see the pain just... Uh, <laughs> Um, they're not looking forward to some of those changes. So you can see that, you know, those tools actually, it, it was more than just them saving some time. It, it made them happier doing their job. And, and people that are happier at their work tend to do better. So, Yeah, I totally agree. And that, that leads me to a good question about larger companies overall, because I'm assuming the company that purchased Python Safety is a larger one. That is true. So uh, what are the challenges beyond something like that of, of doing this kind of thing in a larger organization? Um, so are you asking like what, what kind of, what kind of problems do larger organizations have or smaller ones or specifically in an acquisition state? <laughs> you know, either one, I think, um, there, there's certainly, those are two different conversations, but, yeah. uh, Oh, yeah. One of the problems, and, and I don't just have this problem with the company that bought Capital Safety, or sorry, bought Python Safety. This is this is just a larger company problem in general that I've run into on, on several occasions is they, they adopt enterprise level solutions a lot of the time, which maybe it's essential, maybe not. But specifically with their platforms they choose for building and managing their websites, um, I've never worked with any of them that work well, that are easy to develop for, or or even where you can just get a simple page up in, you know, a day or two. It's they're they're, they're very clunky, they're very difficult to use and it's kind of boggled my mind every time I run across them. So, you know, I'm, I'm talking about things like uh, where you start working for a large company and they're using something like Microsoft SharePoint or Adobe Experience Manager to manage their different products and websites. And um, even even trying to find a developer for those sorts of things is very difficult. There, uh, there aren't nearly as many um, Adobe Experience Manager developers as there are just general web developers. So, you know, it's a very specialized niche and um, it's it's tough. Um, uh, let me think. There's... Um... Well, it makes me think just on that point, the challenge with good user experience overall for enterprise level software has been around for it seems like for as long as software has been around and i feel like the the consumer level software the ux side of that where you're you know companies like facebook or twitter are leading in um the, the we call it a revolution of user experience where they're investing huge amounts of resources into creating better and better apps over time. Um, but it just doesn't feel like the, the enterprise level gets the same attention. Um, and I think that's a, it's a, it's a, a, a clue to this, a similar issue as far as developing for those platforms. They just don't have the same level of, uh, of experience overall on both sides. Why, why do you think that is? I think, one of the biggest issues is the types of developers you're you're attracting. Mm. Um, 
when you are working in a, and I'm going to keep using the same examples, a SharePoint or an Adobe Experience Manager kind of environment, um, you're typically finding developers that have a background in, say, Java, um, not necessarily anything web-related. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you're bringing in these perhaps very highly talented developers that have never really built a website before and don't really know the, the different concerns or they, they haven't really um, had any experience building a user interface on a website before. And, and now they're tasked with doing those things. Um, and they, they do it in ways that you might expect a developer to that's never touched a website before, and that's kind of the result. So may, maybe the problem is solved by, may, maybe there's an opportunity here for, for people that are web developers to say, you know what, I'm going to go learn how to actually build out Adobe Experience Manager websites really well. That way I'm the best at it, and I can go sell my services and make kick-ass Adobe Experience Manager apps, um, but but I, I do wonder, you know, why why not? Since the development time is still tremendous for those enterprise platforms, why why can't we convince them to move away from those into custom platforms that are much easier to build, much easier to iterate on, and um, just easier in general to send out to different global markets that need to localize for their you know their um, their populations. So I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot there. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think there is a, a lot of challenge around that. And, and so let's touch on the idea of design philosophy for a second. Cause that you mentioned the idea that these developers are coming in without having a sense of that philosophy, especially if they don't have a web background. So tell me about your design philosophy. Uh, well, you know, I'm a very goal-oriented person, so before I ever hop into, you know, really this is just part of the design process, I think, so before I ever touch anything like pen and paper or Photoshop, I like to spend a lot of time just researching the actual problem and kind of distilling it to the, the actual intent of what's trying to to, to happen here. So sometimes that means like talking to the business owners or people within the business or, you know, if possible, actual end users. Um, it's, it's good to be very, uh, to, to kind of design from a user-centered perspective. Um, but, you know, that's, that's definitely the first stage of my design process is just research and figuring out exactly, you know, what needs to happen here and what the real goals are. Um, following that, I, I like to spend a lot of time collecting data. Um, I used to make the mistake of hopping too quickly into, you know, sketching up things in Photoshop or even on pen and paper, and um, I hadn't really a full sense of all the information that needed to be displayed to the end user. So um, I like to do kind of a data audit a lot of the time where I'm figuring out every possible bit of information that will need to be displayed and the best places to display those things. That way when I do hop into the, you know, more of the real design process, I, I can, you know, have those bits and pieces to put around a page or a view and um, there's no fear of missing something along the way. Um, and then once, once I do hop into, you know, Photoshop or wherever I go, I like to iterate often and, and kind of push things out to a 
um, staging or production environment as, as often as possible. So I don't usually launch a finished prod product only. And, and really, I don't even believe in finished products. I think that there's always room for improvement and room for next iterations. So um, it might be as simple as starting out with sketching some things up and sending it over to the client for review. Um, or it might mean, you know, putting together a, a prototype where there's clearly a lot of things missing, but it has some core functionality in there. Um, and then just building upon that over and over again until we get to a point where we're ready to release it to the public. Um, you know, I don't, I don't usually like to wait until every single feature is built into a website before I release it. Um, and in fact, I like to strip out features wherever possible. Um, I constantly run into the problem of clients and businesses just wanting way too much on their website and um, it just it doesn't make sense a lot of the time. Uh, one example of that actually recently was um, a client of mine, they wanted videos to be shown in a series so you could like watch a video and then go to the next one and then the next one. and. They had some great content, but they also wanted a feature where on each video you could leave notes for yourself. So if you ever came back and watched that video, you could see what you wrote about it before. And it's it's one of those things where you have to find a way to tell the client, well, you know, maybe they have their own way of taking notes. Maybe they use Notepad and paper, or maybe they use Evernote. But is it really worth building out that feature and spending the time and money there, or can we can we get this out quicker or spend that time elsewhere? And on the subject of, of communicating those ideas with clients, it sounds like you've gone through um, a, a similar, as a designer, a similar uh, growth pattern with understanding the process of design that works best. Do you find it where when you explain things like um, the concept of, well, software is never really finished, or the idea of let's launch early and iterate because the learning still continues, or even the idea of starting with research and data gathering where it's like, okay, we're not going to just jump in and, okay, now we're, now we're creating a new interface. It's like, well, hold on a second. There's a lot of things we can learn from of, of what's going on currently. Do you find it hard to communicate those ideas to the people in, in the leadership role in some instances? Generally, no. Um, typically, if I... If I, if I start and kind of explain, you know, here's why it's not a good idea to jump straight into design, um, clients, clients listen and they understand. And, and really, I think it's mostly common sense when you think about it. It's, you know, it's not, you know, a fascinating idea to do research before you start doing something or to have a plan at least. Um, so um, I, don't, I don't typically have too much trouble with that. Uh, where I do usually run into a lot of trouble is convincing them that user testing and user research is very important, or at least important enough to spend money on. Um, you know, it's it can it can be expensive to um, actually conduct live user tests and watch them use a prototype of a product that you're thinking about throwing out there, and watching them you know make mistakes and asking them all the questions and. Um, you know, figuring out how you need to change your product before going to launch. Um, and there's a huge cost involved with that. And it's not right for everyone. You know, some businesses simply can't afford that and they'll do fine without it. Um, you know, 
it's it's one of those things that where you do know that it's right for them and you can't convince them, it's it's a real bummer because those things can make a huge difference a lot of the time. Yeah, even even if you take the Jacob Nelson approach where he says if you just test five users, then you'll find 80% of the design defects just based on his experience and doing this over and over. It, it, it doesn't have to cost a lot when you take something like that limited approach, but the outcome, like you're saying, I totally agree, can be transformative on the product you're creating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and perhaps it's not as important on um, you know your blog on gardening, but you know <laughs> when you get into some of those larger apps, then yeah, it's it's one of those things that definitely do it if you can. And, and riffing off that idea, I, we've come so far today on uh, websites where you've got open source tool sets, you know, with an install and a theme. You're like. 90% of the way there for your gardening blog or maybe even 100% and now you just start start creating content. I mean, are we at a place where the marketing site uh innovation inside the marketing site or the generalized marketing marketing site there's no more opportunity? Oh man, I've heard this a few times now. I I don't know. I Everyone seems to see this. I, I don't really see it. Yes, there are a lot of patterns out there that you can make a pretty kick-ass site by just following one of those and, and you know have your hero image or slider at the top or whatever it might be and you're subscribing. But the, uh, I think it's, yeah, maybe those sites aren't as interesting, but to me those sites aren't that interesting to go work for anyways. So um, I'd much rather go find... Um, clients that have unique problems that they need to solve or you know maybe it's more than just the the forward-facing part of what's happening on that marketing site but what happens when they sign up for the newsletter maybe maybe you need to develop a way to send a follow-up uh, campaign where it sends them an email on day one and then if they click the link in that, then maybe send them a different email on day three and, and kind of measuring, you know, what emails can we send them to increase our sales? And I hate talking like that. That kind of marketing stuff kills me. But, um, you know, all I'm saying is that there's there's interesting problems you can solve that can, you know, create huge changes for the business as a whole. I'm under the impression that if a business feels like there really is no innovation there, and they're just not thinking enough. You know, it's like they're just not taking a look at what's going on inside their, their organization and saying, how can we either make this more efficient? Or to your example, how can we offer a better customer experience where, you know, if we do we have that sign up and then in three days they get something else that helps them along in the next step? Um, I, there's so many opportunities with technology today. It, it feels like it's just... You're just skimming the the bottom uh, of the barrel in some ways if you just rely on uh, the the quintessential marketing site. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to touch on um, creating games because I know this is something you're really interested (laughs) in. Uh, Just to unpack a little bit about that, tell me what's going on there. So nothing's really going on there. Like I'm not building any games right now. 
though I have taken a number of courses online um, where they, they teach game design and a few different frameworks that make it easier. So it's definitely an area of interest for me. Um, I've, I've, you know, since I was a kid, I, I loved video games. Um, I'm I'm big into the puzzle games like Portal. I'm not sure if you're a gamer. That's that's a popular one and. Um, uh, Braid, Limbo. There's there's all sorts of different games that you know they just make you think while you're playing, and I've always enjoyed those experiences. So it it would be fantastic. I I, I would have so much fun. I think if if I had the opportunity someday to work for a publisher or a developer that that was making a game, there's just there's there's a lot of fun stuff happening there all the time and. Um, having met a few people in, in that space, there's just a lot of really great talent there, too. Just very nice, um, incredibly talented people. Do you think that business has an opportunity in the game space? Um, I think I would be silly to say it doesn't, um, just because there's so many business. Like, there's... There's businesses now where their entire product line is selling other businesses on gamifying their employee base. Where wow. you know if if employee performs so well this month, show everyone else in the company that they earned a badge or they get you know I don't I don't know what the prizes are. I don't work for one of those companies, but I'm I'm guessing they might get gift certificates to restaurants or, or something like that. But it's all you know it's reward based on performance or um, some something else. And um, there's there's definitely something interesting there, but I've I've also tried to introduce some gamification into my own publications and apps, and it can it can fail terribly. <laughs> so I, I don't know. There's probably a balance there and maybe there's a right time and not a right time to do it. But I, I got to wonder, you know, if everyone gamifies everything at some point, it's going to lose its luster, right? I think so. I'd love to hear what happened when you tried to do that. Uh, nothing. It was just, <laughs> you know, a huge waste of time where I spent, you know, I don't remember how many days developing a system where um, this this was back on tutorial nine, where uh, you know people that submitted enough cool resources to our site might get a badge and rewarded in some special way, and you know people that wrote enough got another one, and, and it was kind of this collection game, and that's a pretty common pattern I think in gamification systems. But our user base didn't care about that at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would that's one of those areas I would have done very well to do some user research first, but that wasn't really something I was doing too much of back then. So to wrap up, I want to ask you one final question. Give me three pieces of advice on how companies can kick more ass with technology today. All right. Um so you know, if if you're a small company, there's um there's a strong mentality I've noticed to kind of stay away from hiring a developer or a designer. Um, you know, they contract a lot of that work out. If you are able to, if it's within your, 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 you know, your means, definitely hire a developer and a designer. And maybe those are the same person because um, they have and make them people that are very deeply involved in your business because they will see the same problems you are looking at 
and have completely different ways of automating them and solving them. So those those kinds of people can transform your your business in an, in an amazing way if you can bring them on board and, and and give them you know not such a shallow look at what's going on in the company, but you know really let them understand the, the intricacies of how your company functions. Um, if you are a developer. Um, Gosh, I, you know, I'm just going to say things that come to my mind right now, but I'm sure all these things might change in a month or two. That's just how this works. Um, I've been spending a lot of time over the past six months or so uh, learning uh, Gulp, which is kind of a task automator that makes it very easy to do trivial things that you spend a lot of time doing as a developer and make it completely automated. Um, Gulp is just one example. There's another one called Grunt, and there's probably others out there I don't know about. Um, but those are both tools that will change how you develop. So definitely look at those. And if you're not already doing it, make sure you're also writing CSS in a preprocessor language like SAS or less, because that'll make your life so much easier. And then uh, I guess one other thing that's on my mind right now is, you know, if, if you're not doing user research, like real, you know, getting on the phone or, or even bringing them in the office or going to their office and watching them work on your product, at least be doing research through analytical tools like, like Google Analytics. Um, you know, one, one problem I worked on recently for uh, Matthew over at UX Booth is he wanted to know at the end of a blog post if people were more inclined to click a link to another article if it was formatted one way or another. And so a simple A-B test. And what I did is I just whipped up a few quick lines of code that sent to Google Analytics whenever someone clicked one of those or the other. And I didn't really expect one to perform any better than the other. I thought it was kind of a silly thing to do. But uh, lo and behold, a month later, one's clicked more than twice as often as the other. So there's a clear pattern there of, you know, if, if we present the information this way, users are far more engaged than the other way. So that kind of research can still be very powerful, and it's very easy and affordable to do. So definitely be using that kind of uh, information. Awesome. <laughs> so tell everyone where they can find out more about you and connect to you uh, online. Sure. Um, I, I have a website. It's called thelegate.com. It's, it's really it's just a personal timeline that it's, it's more for my own personal use, so I stopped forgetting when I did certain things. But uh, you can find my contact information there. Um, and you can also follow me on Twitter uh, using the same handle, thelegate. So that's, that's how you can find me. Thanks for the conversation, David. Feed the Machine is a podcast created to help you design a faster, stronger, and more reliable business with technology. If your business needs help in that area or you have questions about how to do that, reach out to us at hello at secondform.com. Also, if you love our show, please give us a rating in iTunes to help us reach more people like you. So there's one more thing that we do with our guests, and I wanted to see if you'd be willing to. Um, we have them say, feed the machine, in whatever fun, silly, impersonation <laughs> way, and we use that little bit of audio as part of our bumper on the intro. So wondering if you could give me 
your version of feed the machine in whatever crazy voice you want to say it in. Okay. <laughs> uh, gosh, I'm no good at this. Feed the machine. Nice. <laughs> oh, we've never had one of those before. That's really good. I, I don't know. I just thought feed with a question mark was kind of funny. But... <laughs> 